You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Moving closer to the middle of the From the Valley of the Shadow of the Podcast Mic to the customized XML feed, from the offices of professors to the lost mustard seed, the cash cow lurks. Roaming the earth as long as we've had gold to melt down and brought to us in the warning that only Steve Taylor could bring in 1993, Cash Cow and the rest of the tracks from the album Squint were what was playing in the mid-90s in Nathan Gilmore's college dorm room and in young Michael Farmer's Christian rock collection. And today, to talk about this album's 25th anniversary, Steve Taylor himself is joining us on Christian Humanist Profiles. Steve, thank you for coming along with two longtime fans. It is my pleasure, thanks. I think we probably need to begin talking about Squint by talking a little bit about your career just prior to it. You left uh, the Christian rock industry in the late 80s to form Chagall Guevara, in my opinion, one of the great lost bands of the alternative era. But that band never found the success that it should have. And on this album, Sock Heaven is very blatantly about that experience. And I suspect a good deal of it went into Jesus's for Losers, too. So would you mind talking a little bit about the ways Chagall Guevara fed the material on this record? Yes. Um, I mean, no, I wouldn't mind talking about it. Uh, it was the the Chagall Guevara experience was so uh such an an all-consuming fire and uh it was uh uh we all kind of pushed all our all life's chips into the middle of that enterprise uh and so when it uh when it sort of i don't know it wasn't it didn't blow up it it just kind of dissolved. Um, it, there was just a lot of uh, uh, angst, I guess, from the experience that all of us went through. Um, we uh, were, you know, pretty confident that it was going to be a, a success. And um, uh, it just did not play out the way we thought it would. And I don't think any of us were... It seems silly in retrospect, but I don't think any of us were prepared for it not uh, being the success that we imagined it was going to be. Um, and so, yeah, the, the 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 pressures of that and the pressures of you know moving to a new town for Lynn and myself and um, putting kind of all our uh, fortunes on the line for that. Uh, you know, I started in the band being reasonably uh, well off. And uh, by the time the band experience was over, I was like flat broke. And um, oh, man. So it was just a it was a, a heavy experience in all regards. And, you know, we, we it's kind of a miracle. We were able to make the album that we made because we argued about everything. Uh, it wasn't necessarily uh claws out or anything like that it was just everything that we did it was it moved very slowly and we looked at it from all different angles and in some ways you know i think we would have been better off being 15 years younger and a lot stupider because all that knowledge that we'd accumulated of having done you know worked at lynn had been head of a record label and uh you know i'd been doing music for quite a while at that point and Dave had been doing it more than longer than any of us uh all that combined quote-unquote wisdom uh really does no good at all (laughs) so uh yeah Sock Heaven was was born directly out of that experience
a lament more than anything. It was, it was just kind of heartbroken by the experience and, uh, uh, and heartbroken that, you know, we never got to the place where we weren't speaking to each other. Um, but friendships had definitely been uh, damaged by the end of it, especially probably between Dave and, and Lynn and myself. Um, you know, Dave and Lynn went on to record a, uh, uh, an album uh, from a, a group called Pacifist and, um, and, and worked together on that. And, you know, we stayed friendly, but it took a while before we were all uh, back, to, back to good. I can imagine. What, what made you decide to make Squint after that experience? I try to remember. I think the it was a it was a mix of things. Um, the band broke up. It happened really slowly. Uh, we were, you know, as as unsuccessful as we had been on our with our debut album. We were still more successful than any other rock band that MCA had, and so they wanted us to make another album. And we were convinced that. Uh, the one thing we had to do was get off our label that that was going nowhere. And so it was sort of a standoff and lawyers were involved and we uh, were advised not to record anything or write anything uh, while this was happening. And, um, and so during that kind of fallow period, uh, you know, probably all of us were getting creatively bored and, um, I think probably that Newsboys album opportunity came first. And, uh, but I think, yeah, I recorded uh, the, the uh, Squint album after recording that first Newsboys album. Um, and so, I, I mean, in, in many ways, I, I was, I had a full head of steam wanting to get back in the studio because I'd learned so much from being in the band. And, uh, you know, it, it was a, it was the best experience creatively that I could imagine having. I, I was not, I, I was really nervous about being in a, in a situation where I wasn't, you know, frankly, the boss. And, uh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> everything was decided three ways. Uh, of course, Mike and, and Wade, our drummer and bass player were key elements to the group as well. But Lynn and Dave and I were writing the songs and, uh, uh, and it was a, a very different experience having uh, a three-way, you know, vote on everything. And I don't, I, I think we probably didn't do anything unless we all agreed that that was the way to go. So certainly slowed the process, creative process down, but it taught me so many good things. And um, I was anxious to take what I'd learned from that experience and uh, see how it would work going back uh, and doing a solo album. Well, I'm going to stick with the Chagall Guevara thing for just a minute. Um, as you mentioned, um, the rhythm section from that band plays on Squint. Dave Perkins plays on Bannerman. But clearly this is its own thing from a performance standpoint. And I'd like to know about the difference in your songwriting process. Since you don't typically play an album, an instrument on your albums, how do you write these songs? Yeah, well, I've got a degree in music and um I, I i was actually really good in in uh theory and composition even back in high school uh but i just had no you know i was i, I could play trombone which really doesn't help much of anything um but uh all those great rock trombones yeah, exactly songs. yes you know such a such a you know i mean i i you know i picked up the trombone for the chicks obviously <laughs> Uh, but, <laughs> but, uh, I, I, and I played bass for a while, but I wasn't really good at it. And, uh, when I was getting my degree, I almost didn't get my degree cause I was having a really hard time passing piano for proficiency and it wasn't for lack of trying. I mean, I'm not saying I was the greatest piano practicer, but, uh, I just didn't have a facility for it, which is weird. Cause I'm a really excellent typist like I'm I'm lightning fast shouldn't that translate into playing the keyboard I, I would have thought so <laughs> but it didn't and uh, so but I could write out charts and uh, 
you know, had a had a good head for music. Um, and so with uh, the Squint album, I typically wrote up charts and had a lot of ideas on, you know, how things should sound and how they should be played and things like that. But at the same time, I was working with a, a really brilliant group of musicians. And uh, of course, Mike and Wade, I knew them really well. And uh, they were a fantastic rhythm section in Chagall Guevara. And that translated really well to this, uh, the Squint album. Uh, Jerry McF- Yeah, the bass is just monster on Squint. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, I could talk about Wade for days, but I think people, because the guitars are kind of front and center, some people miss just how good his bass playing is and how key it was to everything that we did. And uh, I just love his playing. And I love Mike's playing, too. I was listening to the Squint album this morning in the gym at realizing I was going to be talking about it. And, uh, yeah, they just made for a fantastic rhythm section. So I might bring in like a, 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 a certain beat or groove that I would suggest to Mike. And, uh, you know, he would do it and usually add his own twist to it to make it better. And then uh, Wade, sometimes I would have a, an idea for a kind of a bass melody, but Wade always made things better. And then Jerry McPherson was uh, the person who played just about all the guitars. There were some solos by a guy named George Bradfute, who was great as well, but really so much of the sound of that album is Jerry's uh, various guitar textures and tones, and we just had a blast making that album. Russ Long was the engineer. Uh, I don't think he had engineered an album before that, except for maybe the Newsboys album that I just produced. And... uh, you know, we brought in some good guests. Like you said, Dave did a great job. Uh, Phil Madeira played some keyboard stuff. Uh, so it was a, a, a really great group of uh, fine Nashville-based musicians. You're leaving out Phil's greatest performance on this record, the uh, the insane preacher at the end of Smug. Hearing it this morning, I remembered exactly where we were and what he looked like when he was recording that. And he just kept cracking us up. And I don't know what I was thinking, but at some point we decided, well, I think we got to put this on the album. <laughs> well, and, Steve, I want to keep rolling with Smug. I, I'm going to let Michael ask the smart questions about musical things. Yes. I'm just going to be the aging youth group kid asking you about the stories <laughs> that these songs tell. Right, yeah. So with Smug, I mean... And a few other songs on the album, too. We've got this story of certain poisonous influences in the culture that turn around and become part of the life of the church. Yes. And I'm noticing that, you know, Smug, I mean, is a story that just never really went away. But in your mind, I mean, have, you know, Madam Streisand and Master Limbaugh largely moved on to Twitter? Yeah. Or as far as you can tell, <laughs> as far as you can tell are AM radio and, you know, movie personalities still the grand poisonous influences here. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, I think they represent, still represent some pretty extreme poles, and it's amazing that, you know, they're still in the uh, public conversation uh, all these years later, but uh, it's, it's, it's just kind of that know-it-all, uh, it, it's, it's just such a strange thing that, that followers of Jesus would take an attitude of smugness on, you know, I mean, it's not a strange thing that we would see it in the culture at large. It's just crazy to me that that would, would possibly ever be the mark of a follower of Jesus. And, you know, I, I, Hey, I, that one of the reasons that I shot the video, uh, holding a mirror up in every shot was because, uh, don't get me wrong, I'm, not, I'm certainly not above that myself. Uh, there would be people who might say that uh, uh, I've got three fingers pointing back at me. So, uh, um, but it is, a, it is an odd state of affairs that uh, that attitude would, would be ever even considered as 
something that a that a Christian should hold. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, it seems to me that you know, again, the social media world kind of accelerates that. It adds new incentives to take on that persona because anyone, even without the AM radio transmitter that Rush Limbaugh has, can become a minor celebrity by never being wrong and never admitting that they're wrong. Right. I mean, is this something that you have seen as accelerating over the last 25 years, or do you see you know, this as more of a sort of timeless human temptation? Well, it's, it's timeless. It's just the megaphone. Everybody gets a megaphone now, so uh, it's, it's much easily, more easily accessible, I guess. Very good. Well, Michael, I'm, I'm done being fanboy for a moment. You want to ask something smart? Oh yeah, I'm not sure how smart this question is, uh, but but Squint rather clearly belongs to that era of alternative rock. It sounds, in a lot of ways, like 1993 to me. Right. But I also don't know a lot of other records that sound like it. And in particular, as I was listening through it, I could not figure out what genre to call "Easy Listening" and "Sock Heaven," which are my two favorite songs on the album. Right. What did you have in mind musically for this record? Uh. I think I described it to someone when we were uh, discussing the album, kind of the the, the uh, kind of controlling theory behind what it would sound like. Is I I said I'm thinking about calling it the kitchen sink because I just want to make a great sounding record that throws in every influence that I can think of and that I'm enjoying and see what comes out. And so the, part of that is a result of me not being a, uh, an instrumentalist. And so, uh, and you could probably make that case throughout uh, my career that the times when I've worked with a, a band, you know, in the case of Chagall Guevara specifically, um, and on the last few albums, uh, they tend to have more of a unified sound because we allow the band uh, the the constraints of a band to define the sound um with squint i I mean i think it all holds together pretty well but there was nothing that was out of bounds as far as uh we're we're not going to use that instrument on this record are we are we except for i guess i didn't use any horns no saxophone on this one um uh but yeah it was i was just wanting to make a a great sounding record and uh and use everything that I learned over the past few years, especially with Chagall Guevara. So we spent a lot more time uh, trying to get interesting guitar sounds, and we limited it as far as uh, it was primarily, you know, you know, guitar, bass, and drums. But we weren't afraid of adding some flourishes or some interesting harmonies or uh, you know, occasional oddball instruments. In the case of uh, uh, easy listening. There was this Jamaican uh, kind of dancehall reggae artist named Shaba Ranks that uh, I was probably listening to a little too much those days, and uh, that certainly uh, comes through if you've ever heard uh, his music before. The Chagall Guevara album, we worked with Matt Wallace, who uh, was a, is a fantastic producer, still is, and one of my favorite people. And I still can't imagine anybody else getting that album made. He was also just a master kind of psychologist and managed to get uh, all the warring factions within the band working together to make something that uh, still holds up, I think, really well. And so uh, Matt uh, had just finished producing, let me make sure I got this right. No, after, I think after the Chicago Bar album, he went and did another Faith No More album. And um, there was a song on that album. I'm trying to remember the name of it. And I loved the loop 
that I heard on this song. And so I contacted him and said, hey man, could I license that loop? And they said, well, actually, uh, we stole it from uh, Simon and Garfunkel's <laughs> Cecilia. And so, so well, then I think, well, there's no way I'm going to be able to afford that. So we took that loop and we essentially recreated uh, it in the studio. And Russ Long, my engineer, is really the hero of that one because he came up with something that was both close to the loop I was inspired by and had its own kind of vibe. And then uh, we just started building the track on top of that. And Michael, believe it or not, I spent a lot of time in the early 90s listening to Shabba Ronks. So oh, really? That, that makes so much sense now that you say it. Okay, there you so go. Easy, easy listening always had a place for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I never knew how to name it. But yeah, I mean, now I know what I've been hearing all these years. There you go. I'm glad, glad to help clear that up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is great, man. Now, I've got a, a weird theory, but, you know, now that Shabba Ranks is out there, yep. what can be weird, right? That's right. Uh, but I think one of the reasons why I like easy listening lyrically is because it reminds me of the epilogue to Orwell's 1984, where this very eloquent historian is giving a history of an early mo- earlier moment, namely, you know, the events that Winston Smith lives through. Right. And he talks about this story where language stops doing anything. But you can tell by reading the epilogue that that moment's over. And I see that with a twist in your grandfather persona and easy listening. Right. You know, of course, here's the difference. He is longing for those days when nobody was saying anything that means anything. Right. So, I mean, as you see things, Steve, I mean, have the grandchildren gone radical yet or are we still waiting on that revolution? <laughs> oh, man. Uh I don't know. We're still a few years off from 2044. Yeah, that's right. Come early. That's right. Just a side note. um, I was remembering a few days ago that, speaking of 1984, because remember there's that scene at the end when they're putting him in like a, what is it, like a a cage around his head? Yeah, room 101, rat cage. And they release the rats, right? And... um, my, I was remembering for some reason that when I was in high school, my best friend uh, Dale and I were like on a sleepover or something or at a camp or something. And the next morning he says, did you know what you did last night? He's, I said, no. He said, you weren't, you weren't talking in your scree- you, you sleep. You were screaming in your sleep. And I had read, you know, 1984, the year before, and I was screaming, not the rats, not the rats. <laughs> so... Um, so yeah, anyway, I'll go back to, go back on uh, message now, but, uh, uh, I think, um, you, we, we, you know, we did that song, we've been doing that song on tour, uh, with, uh, the perfect foil and, um, uh, you know, you, I mean, you, you kind of make a snap judgment when you're thinking about pulling old material out, it, it like you try it and it, and it immediately feels like, oh, this works or it doesn't work. And for whatever reason, it still works. So I'm not sure if I can give you a specific answer to your question, but, oh man, I got to hope that, I, I, I feel like the, between when that song was recorded and uh, uh, well, these, all these are just end up being generalizations, but I, let me just say I've been encouraged by many younger followers of Jesus that they, uh, uh, I don't know. Let's. I'll just leave it at that. There are encouraging signs. Well, good, good. I mean, you know, as as far as you can tell, I mean, you know, is the are these encouraging signs largely coming in missions work in you know young pastors? Is it political involvement? I mean, what <laughs> kinds of things? I mean, and obviously, I mean, when you wrote this song, you weren't laying out a whole program for the renewal of. <laughs> Christianity in North America, right? But I mean, what kinds of things have you seen? I mean, can you give an example or two, or would you rather? Yeah, not? well, I think there's, I think there is a, 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 a bigger. Yeah, I hate to say it, but when I was a youth pastor, um, you know, I was mostly just concerned about keeping keeping them entertained, and uh, I just could have done a lot better job. Uh, that that the the sense of. Uh, uh, you know, mission and and work working to make the world a better place and kind of fearlessness uh, that I see uh, from a lot of uh, young Christians um, 
is very encouraging. Certainly, a, a sense of, of a sense of mission and a, a sense of uh, kind of limitless possibilities. Um, you know, I mean, I guess you could say I'm, maybe I'm putting a, a bright spin on this, but uh, uh, I I I would like to think that uh, that we spent so much time back in the day arguing over trivial stuff. And uh, it seems like uh, if you're going to follow Jesus in 2018, that uh, it, it may, it, you know, it may cost you something. It may cost you some friends. It may cost you some uh, 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 positions of, uh, that you might get otherwise, you know, so... I, 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 the numbers may be shrinking, but hopefully the the commitment uh, is uh, increasing. Yeah, that makes some good sense. I mean, one one phenomenon that I've noticed, and again, this is just as I've moved from context to context, is that yeah, I mean, as I've gotten older, I mean, the differences between Christian traditions have become less important in my imagination than the strong common ground and the strong common need that we have for each other. I've got a lot more in common with, you know, my Roman Catholic sister than I do with, you know, the agnostic who, you know, thinks that it's all baloney. Yes, that is very well put. Well, very good. I, 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 I'm going to go ahead and go into full fanboy mode here because Cash Cow has been my mythology for 25 years now. <laughs> uh, this is a farcical mythology and I love it. It's over the top. Um, and it's utterly wrong because most of us who have thought very long at all about avarice know that it doesn't travel around licking people. <laughs> it's a disordered love of possessions that emerges from experiences and expectations and other insidious atmospheric happenings. But yet every time I listen to the song, it seems so right. So, I mean, do you still travel the land? delivering an oracle to people about this ravenous bovine? Yeah, we, uh... That was another one that we pulled out on the last few tours. Um, Wait, really? You performed that song live? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's it's not easy with a four-piece, but, you know, we bravely go. <laughs> That's phenomenal. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it still, it still works. Um, I might have uh, switched out the name uh, uh, on the last tour from uh, Tilton to uh, another... Uh, famous person that starts with T, but otherwise, um, it's stayed the same. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah, but when I was listening to the song today, like, oh, yeah, well, this is, this, this is still pretty good. And, um, uh, and it certainly seems more true than ever. Well, sure. And again, I mean, this is what, you know, makes mythology work so well, right? I mean, if you try to take it literally... Uh, it's not going to make any sense at all. But if you let it work as a myth, this is, you know, a story that we find ourselves in. And all the de the details might not work out exactly as they happen in the myth. But, I mean, on a spiritual level, this reality uh, is coming to get you. Yeah, it is, right. My, my favorite line still is... Uh, uh, the last I too was hypnotized by those big brown eyes. The last time I uttered those three little words, I deserve better. And uh, I, every time I hear that, I think, yeah, got that one right. Uh, every time I even start thinking that in my own mind, uh, I'm just reminded what a what nonsense that is for a follower of Jesus to to think that. Well, and I, I one thing I really like about that song is that it. Uh, it makes it clear that you don't have to actually have money to have been licked by the cash cow. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I'll just go ahead and say, I mean, you know, just in case our listeners aren't aware of it, that uh, Robert Tilton, who gets mentioned in the uh, earlier versions of the song, is a prosperity gospel televangelist who now exists for my own students who are in their 20s. They don't know who the heck he is except for the Pastor <laughs> Gas YouTube clip. Right, Which yeah. I think is a fitting fate for him. Do you know... Um, I mean, Steve, you obviously don't know this because we've never talked before. I, maybe I've told you this, Nathan. I used to get up when I was seven, eight years old. I would get up super early to watch G.I. Joe, which came on at six o'clock in the morning. But at 5.30, the Robert Tilton show used to air. So I, I've, I've seen the last 15 minutes of about, I don't know, a thousand Robert Tilton shows. 
<laughs> no, you never told me that. What was that like as a as a child? Like, was it fascinating or uh, uh, bewitching or hypnotic or how how did that work? Yeah, yeah, it, it kind of was because the church we went to wasn't like that at all. So, so I didn't I didn't really confuse it with Christianity. Although I, I certainly didn't have the vocabulary to think, oh, this is heretical. Right, right. This is the prosperity gospel. Right. Mostly, I thought, when is this going to be over so that I can watch GI Joe? <laughs> Oh, that's good. Well, speaking of uh, cartoons and the cash cow, you released a full music video package with this album, Squint, Movies from the Soundtrack, which I wore out on VHS in 1997. Uh, I would love to hear about the process of putting that together. Yeah, the uh, label came to me and they said, uh, at the time, this idea of like a video album was in vogue. And uh, they said... We don't have a ton of money, but it seems like a lot of money now in retrospect. We said, we've got $75,000. So if you can deliver something that we can sell uh, as a video album, you know, do whatever you want with it. So uh, I said first, yes, I can do that. And uh, I bought four round the world tickets. And at the time you could fly Delta Airlines and you could go anywhere that they flew in the world as long as you kept going the same direction. You couldn't backtrack. So we I bought four of these tickets for, uh, you know, uh, Russ Long, our engineer, would uh, do the video playback. And then uh, Mark Hollingsworth, a, a friend and, and one of my managers at the time, would be kind of the road manager. And then Ben Pearson, who I got to know through Chicago Var and was kind of our main photographer all those years, uh, he came along as a cinematographer and he had never actually shot anything, uh, shot film, uh, cinematic film before, he, you know, he was just a still photographer. So we bought a, uh, we, we took some money and bought an old, uh, airy 35 millimeter camera. Um, so that, you know, if we got a, if we got a good image, at least it would, it would look really good on 35 millimeter. And, uh, and then we loaded up with reels of film and, uh, took off and you know I, I packed a really large wardrobe so that I would have a, a, a variety of changes of clothes and had some ideas of what we wanted to shoot but um, it was just one of those ideas that was at the time in particular it was pretty radical notion and we and I wanted to go to places you know I wasn't interested in singing in front of the Coliseum or the Eiffel Tower or something I wanted to go to exotic places so uh we booked, we ended up being the first uh, American film crew to go to North Vietnam. Uh, at the last time uh, most uh, citizens of Hanoi had seen Americans was when they were being paraded through the streets as POWs. So uh, oh, we, wow. we, drew, okay. we drew big crowds wherever we went. Uh, they were always very polite and they always, you know, stood back where we asked them to stand. But uh, uh that went really well. Uh, we went to uh, uh, Bangkok and um, uh, we were in Hong Kong, uh, but the Vietnam part was probably the most interesting and took the most time. We went to Kathmandu and Nepal and up into the mountains. Um, we went to uh, Dubai, which was just starting in the United Arab Emirates, was just starting to become a thing at that point and was one of the strangest uh, places I'd ever been. Uh, uh, we were in Turkey and we shot a lot of it in uh, some interesting places in Turkey. And then we ended up in uh, England and Ireland uh, before we came home. But it was like 21 days, uh, 10 countries. Uh, we were just sending film back via FedEx as we shoot it. Uh, everything should have gone wrong. And by some miracle, everything went right. And it, uh, it turned out better than I'd hoped. So, yeah. Did it do what your label hoped it would do? Yeah, I think um, the label hoped that it would just bring uh, bigger awareness to the project. And, uh, you know, on, on some level, I think that was true. Uh, you know, it's never, none of these things are ever as successful as you think they should be. But I'm now, I'm now resigned to the fact that it's, it's never enough. So once I figured that out, uh, I, I'm a lot more of a content person. You, you had already been doing... Um other people's music videos by that point am i am i right about that yeah i've been doing quite a quite a bit of music video work for other artists and i think that was one of the reasons why reasons why the record label 
was fairly confident that we'd come up with something interesting. One thing about your songs, especially on a lyrical level, is that they tend to be satires of what I think of as North American Christian phenomena. Right. Uh, and yet, you know, none of these videos uh, are shot in North America. So, I mean, is there a, a philosophical connection there uh, that, you know, viewers should pick up or... Was this just a chance to go to cool places, so you grabbed it? It was totally a chance to go to cool places. <laughs> I love, excellent, excellent. I love traveling. <laughs> and, I, and I would, uh, you know, we did quite a bit of touring in Europe. Um, and, and to do that was always, you know, it, the, the, the trick was even to even break even. But I was happy to lose money uh, touring Europe with the band if, just because I wanted to go there, you know. So, and I'm still the same way, like any excuse to travel, I'm in. Very good, very good. Well, I'm going to ask a, a short question, Steve. Uh, did Desmond Raymond Galahad Underwood Frederick the Fourth <laughs> join the emergent church sometime around 2001, or is that spiritual smorgasbord more prevalent than that? <laughs> that I, I I remember you, you mentioned that question in the email. Like uh, I, I was a little the emergent church movement. I wasn't. I I met people associated with it. I'm still a little confused at what it is. I, I'm, I oh, you and me both, and I'm publishing one of their volumes. Oh, right, right. <laughs> um, the people that I met that were kind of associated with it, I, you know, I got on well with. And, uh, uh, but yeah, I don't, I, I'm still, I'm still probably a little confused. And you directed Blue Like Jazz, so if anybody should know. Well, I think, you know, being with Don Miller, who is, you know, one of my favorite people, uh, I know he's confused. So <laughs> there is, <laughs> there is uh, maybe part of the, uh, part of the, <laughs> part of the uh, uh, questions wore off just being with Don. But, um, uh, you know, I think for, for some of them, it was less of a theological stance and just more of a, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe a cultural desire for some freedom beyond the constraints of uh, what maybe what at the time was evangelical. I don't know what, I don't know what it was. I mean, now we could talk well, about... Well, I'll tell you my story with this track, yeah. Steve, is yeah. that... Uh... You know, in 1995, when I was 18 years old, yeah, I thought that this was kind of a you know slightly mean spirited caricature, right? Yeah, and then, like I said, sometime in the first George W. Bush term, I started meeting this guy everywhere I went, <laughs> and I said, "Okay, Steve Taylor has just journeyed to the future to tell me who I was going to meet 10 years from now." <laughs> well, you're welcome. <laughs> You know the killer line in that song? I bravely shook free of my kids and wife. That bravely is just, that's perfect. Yeah. When I heard that this morning, I thought, oh, yeah, that's, that's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> well, Steve, there's another song that, I mean, I definitely hear differently now that I'm 41 than I did when I was 18, and it's Banner Man. Right. And I want you to be my confessor here, Steve, okay. because as I've watched political factions and hypocrites of all sorts you know, appropriate public displays of piety, and they fought Christmas wars on cable news channels. Right. I'm a lot less enthusiastic now about those kinds of displays than I was then. Yeah. So has something in the world changed, or have I simply become the one who lives to whine and scowls for days? <laughs> well, a little bit of history. Um, you would have to go back to Chagall Guevara and... We were dead set on not being tagged as a Christian band, and we worked so hard at not being tagged as a Christian band that uh, even questions like playing the Cornerstone Festival or Greenbelt in the UK, where we were both invited to, like those became major uh, bones of contention between the three of us in the band, and we argued about them for days and longer. Uh, and we ended up playing both of them, and I think in both cases the band was really glad that we did. But uh, we, I was kind of, I was so exhausted by the the effort that it was taking to, to try and uh, disguise our not getting tagged as a Christian band that when uh, a guy from a, a Christian label sent me this song by this band, Newsboys 
called I'm not ashamed to speak the name of Jesus Christ. Like it just felt like a a real breath of fresh air. And that was partly why I was interested in, you know, working on the track and ultimately working with the band is it's, it's just exhausting to, to try and uh, navigate the music business and, and not get tagged. And uh, you know, I was, I was tired of that. So, so, so this is the, uh, I'm a rock and roller who happens to be Christian phenomenon. Yes. Right. And so when we're not we're not a Christian band, we're Christians in a band. Right, right, yeah. I remember the nineties. You remember all that, right? <laughs> and you know, one of the tricks of of Chicago of Art is there just weren't there weren't good examples that we could point to and say, oh, well, let's do it like this. You could maybe make the case for you too, but they really, you know, they really wanted did not want to be associated with the church for most of their career and. Uh, and I, I you know, I may, I guess King's X was kind of around the same time. Like I'm trying to remember. I, although I, they put out Faith, Hope, and Love in 1990, I think. Okay, right. So yeah, they hadn't really, they hadn't really broken through at that point or anything. So, uh, so we just didn't have a good, uh, a good situation to look at and say, oh, let's do it this way, or here's here's a here's a way forward, and uh, and so all that to say. The the Bannerman kind of phenomenon, uh, I saw it in a different light after that experience. So I thought, yeah, I think I like this. And then, of course, it turns out that, uh, you know, there are there ended up being two or three of them, but the original one, like, went totally nuts, holed up in a uh, hotel room uh, outside LAX with a gun, took somebody hostage, and, uh, you know, ultimately went to jail. It might still be in jail, for all I know. So uh, Three life sentences is what I read today. Oh, there you go. Wow. So, you know, but at that point, the song was still out and it was too late to change the lyrics to, um, uh, you know, whatever it was. He never shoots back when they tell him move along or something like that. He seldom shoots back when they tell him move along. Uh, and, and listeners, this is why we love Steve Taylor. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you, you got a point there. We've mentioned this several times, so uh, let's just dive in. Uh, in the years after you released Squint, you became well-known for your production and writing work, particularly with the Newsboys, and then you did two albums that I really love by the band Guardian. Right. Do you see those Newsboys records and Guardian records as extensions of what you're doing on Squint in some way? Because you wrote most or all of the lyrics to those records as well. Uh, yes. Um, I, I, I think I do. Um, when you're... Of course, working with another band, your goal is to serve their vision. But in both cases, they didn't. They were they were wanting me to bring, a, you know, a lyrical perspective and vision to what they were doing. And and I, I think in both cases, neither of the bands felt that they were particularly strong uh, with lyrics. So. I, I mean, I worked really hard on all of them. I will say that writing a, a lyric for the Newsboys, there, there aren't that many lyrics that I wrote for them that I thought, oh, this would work great on one of my albums. Uh, it would happen sometimes, but uh, that was part of the fun and part of the freedom of it as well as uh, there was, on some level, there was more uh, a different craft involved in the songwriting. And uh, I mean, man... I, I I don't want to be immodest, but I think those Newsboys albums are great, and I think the first Guardian take, take me to your leader is from my money the best mainstream Christian rock album of the '90s, and I don't I don't count your records as as mainstream exactly. So you know, accepting Daniel Amos of the '77s, people like that mainstream Christian rock stuff, my youth minister would have pushed on me. I I can't think of a better one than Take Me to Your Leader. Yeah, no, I yeah, love I'll that album. That. I'll agree with that. Well. I I I've loved I love that album too and I, and the 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 Guardian Buzz album I I really love as well. I you know I I don't think we I think the follow up wasn't quite as good. Uh there were there was so much going on. I I don't think I did I I don't think I I did as them as much of a service on that follow up album as I as I wish I would have. But I I loved working with them as well and the whole way I got I ended up working with Guardian was uh I, I don't know if you got... I, well, you can edit this out, so if, I'll tell you a long story and then you can cut it. <laughs> but um, 
So we're doing we're touring the uh, Squint album, and it's the Squint International tour, and um, and uh, the opening band. Uh, well, actually, there's a Canadian band that went on first, named Hocus Pick, and I, I really like those sure. guys a lot. And um, but the the band that I was really excited about musically was this band Dakota Motor Company, and I had done some videos for them, and I loved their album, and I mean, I just thought they had it all. It was fantastic, and so. We're on tour and we're all having a great time. And then uh, Peter, their lead guitarist, gets a call from MTV to have him host one of their shows. And so Dakota Motor Company had to leave the tour so that Peter could go host this MTV show. And it's like, well, now, well you know, we had like a week to figure out who was going to replace them. And the, the head of their label was one of my best friends, Jim Chafee, and he had just recently signed Guardian because Guardian used to be on well, a Southern California metal label uh, called Enigma and, uh, you know, with the same label as Poison and all those kind of hair metal bands from Southern California. And so uh, so he says, well, we got this new band and um, they had just put out an album and he said it would do me, a, you'd really help me out if you let them take that slot. And I heard that, I said, man, aren't they like a, like a hair metal band? And he said, yeah, I know. It's not a great musical fit. <laughs> and he, but I mean, you know, he was, he was just, I mean, he's one of my best friends. And we was just, he was in a bind. And so I said, oh, okay, you know, let's try it. And so they came on tour and, um, and we immediately like just hit it off. Like, uh, you know, they would, they would do their set and I wasn't, particularly into the music, but I could tell they all knew how to play and they were a good band. It just wasn't my thing. But, um, but we, we got on great. And of course, we were all traveling on the same bus. And then we go to Europe and we're finishing off the tour. And at the end of the tour, they said, hey, is there any chance you would want to work with us on our next album? And I said, well, you know, the, the, the hard part is, is that over the last six months, I don't know if you remember this season, but uh, it, hair metal had gone from like, you know, bands like Poison and Motley Crue and whatever else there was going on, like selling out arenas to like barely being able to fill a club, like in the space of six months. Like, uh, you know, grunge had come, come along and just kind of knocked, knocked it out. And uh, so I said, you know, this music that you're doing, it's like, it, it, you got to change. Like there's no future here that I can see. And they said, well, we know we, we want you to help reinvent us and, and help us find a new sound. So I loved working. I mean, I love being with them. So I said, all right, let's try it. And so we went to work and we, you know, started creating the buzz album and it was a blast working with them, but they're, you know, they're cut ups and they like having fun in the studio. And so, and they knew how much I hated hair metal and particularly how much I hated poison. So every day, one of them would make some crack about poison. You know, Tony would say, hey, man, don't you think this, this song could use more C.C. DeVille on the guitar? You know, just to, to, to you know, rub the, put, put the knife in a little. And, uh, or, or the singer would say, man, I, we, we need to sh I need to shred this vocal like Brett Michaels would. And uh, so they would just always make these jokes. And Poison was like the whipping boy for everything that I thought was bad about music and everything we were going to avoid in making their album. And so anyway, we made the album, we mixed the album, and then I went immediately from that, ex from that album into working on the Newsboys' Take Me to Your Leader album. But at this point, the Newsboys were really popular. And uh, the one thing we didn't want to do is record in a studio and have people stopping by all the time and hanging out. So I found a studio that was really kind of a crap hole off of Music Row, off an alley. And um, we rented a bunch of equipment and moved it in, but we knew that we could record the album without anybody knowing where we were, just so we could buckle down and go to work. So I'm working on the Newsboys album. I think I'm working on a guitar part with Jody. He's in the studio, I'm in the control room. The rest of the guys in Newsboys are sitting on the couch behind me. And, um, and I hear the phone ring and you gotta understand while I'm recording the Newsboys album, of course, there's still stuff to be figured out with the Guardian album. You know, uh, where are we going to master? We're talking through like the, the song order and things like that. So they're calling every day probably with a question about something to do with the album that we've just finished for Guardian. So I'm in there in the studio. The phone rings. I hear the assistant, one of the assistant directors pick up the phone and then say to the other assistant director, hey, it's a lead singer of Poison on the phone. He wants to book some studio time. <laughs> so 
<laughs> right. Like, the lead singer of Poison is going to be calling to book studio time at this crap hole studio. Obviously, it's Tony, the guitar player, Guardian, calling, you know, why don't you talk to me? So I just grab the phone, pick up the phone. I say, is this a lead singer of Poison? Yes. Well, I just want you to know your band sucks. Long, awkward pause. And then the voice says, you're joking, right? Well, it still sounds like Tony, you know, it's a Southern California accent. So I said, no, your band sucks and everybody knows it. Another long pause. And then I think, really? Like, that's not possible. Like, why would he call this studio? Why would he want to come to Nashville? And I, I couldn't even remember the guy's name, but I remember, oh yeah, I think Brett Michael. I just so I said, uh, Brett? Yes. Uh, hold on, I'll get you the assistant. Brett Michaels was calling. He wanted to come to Nashville because, you know, hair metal was on the way out. And I guess he just wanted to come to Nashville and start working in some place where nobody would know where he was just to kind of get a fresh start. And, and, a, and a random person had just told him not once but twice that his band sucked. <laughs> so to, to, to be fair, though, Poison does suck. Well, they do, and that, I mean, I, there are a few things that we know that are true in life, in all circumstances, but that's certainly, we can all agree, that's one of them. Well, newsboys, of course, they're all sitting in the room, they witness this, they think this is the funniest thing ever, and we've got that, one of those big boards, whiteboards in the studio, uh, where we're listing the songs and we're checking off things as they get done, but at the top, we saw them figure out what the name of the album was, so they write in at the name of the album, Newsboys, Poison Sucks for the name of the album. And then they do the same thing, do the same thing in the studio where we've got the same thing happening. Well, anyway, Brett Michaels ends up coming to town and he makes a point on the weekend when we are out of the studio, he, he lets the, um, he has the studio owner give him a tour of the studio just so that they, at the oh end gosh. of the tour, he can say to them, Hey, I just want you to know, I would book this studio, but because some guy, as he said, jerked me off over the phone, there's no way I'm ever coming and working here. So he does the whole thing just out of spite, but during the tour, he again sees Poison Sucks written twice in the studio. So I'm not saying I'm proud of that moment, but it's a pretty good story to tell. I wonder if he internalized it. I, you know, it could be. And then, uh, you know, and I guess he ended up spending you know, quantities of time in Nashville. I've never run into him since, you know. Uh, I, would, I would be nervous about that, but he, he, doesn't, he doesn't look that big. So uh, <laughs> maybe one day I will meet Brett Michaels, um, but hopefully never. <laughs> uh, I'm definitely not cutting that story. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, there's no way you can cut that story. So that's my, that's my poison story. Well, this question comes from our friend and network colleague, Josh altman Schoffer, who I think is the one who sent you the link to listen to our show on, I predict, 1990. So. Yeah, okay. Very good. He, he wants to know, who in 2018 do you see is occupying the space that you occupied in 1993, or if anybody does? Um, man, I hate to say it. I just don't know... I, I I hardly know anything about what's going on within Christian music. Um, I yeah, know there's a lot of worship music being done, and I know that uh, I'm sure there's still good work being done, but I just have no idea. Yeah, Skillet is still a thing, apparently. I was surprised to learn. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. are they really? Well, and there's a lot of band. You know, Newsboys are back to all together again and doing a tour, and... Peter, of course, and I are still really good friends, and as as I am with uh, Phil, and still, you know, enjoy seeing the rest of the guys. I haven't seen the tour yet, but they're all having a blast. So, uh, oh, so it's the old lineup again, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's amazing how many uh, how many of those bands are still going and uh, and thriving. But I don't know. I don't know the the kind of. Uh, the crop of youngsters that are out there. <laughs> to what to what degree would you say that the Babylon B or something like that is a successor to what you were doing? I've saw I've saw their uh, I've seen a number of their headlines and they are really good. Like uh, there have been stabs at that before, but whoever's doing that, they're they're nailing it. They they're actually genuinely funny and uh, smart, and you know probably not since something like the Wittenberg Door have I seen that that sharp of uh, satire that's genuinely well-written and funny and uh, 
hats off to them. Well, good. Well, Steve, uh, Michael and I have been at the wheel for most of this conversation, so in the spirit of hospitality, we want you to have the last word. What do you want our <laughs> listeners thinking about squint, Christian rock, moshing floors, or whatever else as we head for the door? Oh, man, don't do that to me. Uh, I have a hard enough time answering. I just did. Um, when I listened to the album today, I was, I was happy. Like, I, I, I don't have that experience as... You know, when you were when I listened to the the, the story about uh, I predict nineteen ninety, like some of the songs, like oh yeah, that still sounds pretty good, and it's like oh man, I I wish I hadn't done that, or or I or I you know was sad about the vocals or something. Listening to Squint, I'm I'm I still really like that album, so uh, that was nice. Uh, you know, we all think that the latest thing we've done is is the best, and I like uh, I like. Uh, the work that I've gotten to do with uh, the perfect foil and and probably the best recording experience I've ever had was with uh, the with Danielson and and the album uh, the EP we did with Steve Albini that was I almost don't ever want to record again because it'll probably never be as good as that week was in the studio with Steve Albini so uh, I guess you know if, if your listeners aren't doing anything. Uh, and I haven't heard those those albums. Uh, take a listen. Are you planning on doing another Perfect Foil album? Um, th- that is never out of the question. We're all still really good friends. Uh, Jimmy Abeg, our guitar player, is um, can still play great. He his uh, condition with his macular degeneration is getting worse and worse to the point where he might have even difficulty being able to work his guitar pedals. Um, oh, man. That's been rough. And, uh, you know, we're all still really close. I see John all the time, too. So we're all really tight. I just talked to uh, Daniel Smith uh, last week. Uh, he's one of my favorite people. Um, so it's possible we'll do more. You know, I, I think uh, in many ways the the project we did with Daniel was... Uh, uh, he is he is not to everyone's uh, liking. I understand musically. Shadows of light trails connecting the chords. Let it slide to the other side, to the other side where the war is over. Let it slide to the other side, to the other side where the war is over. everything about him and when he was out on tour with us uh i remember the first night um the rest of the guys had never heard of him i don't think and uh you know he he he, he performed inside his uh nine fruit tree i don't know if you've ever seen yeah the, i was gonna ask if he's right. still using the tree yeah yeah well i asked him specifically can you bring the tree out and uh <laughs> so the first the first day you know we're, i think we're in seattle on the first first day of the tour and he's setting up the tree and then he starts sound checking and all the, 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 my bandmates look at me like with this sideways look like, what's going on here? And so, uh, you know, he does his set that night and they're all looking at me like, what in the world? And then the second night he does it again and they're like, oh, he means to do this. And then the third night is like, it's like, oh, wow, he's really good. And so, uh, so we all got on great and then working with him was a total blast and, uh, Really, that that last EP uh, reminded me of what it was like on on the best days with Chagall Guevara. Is when you're all collaborating on something and everybody's got a say, and you're just looking for the best ideas. There's there's nothing like it. So ultimately, that's that's my favorite thing about making music is doing it with people that I love and. Uh, it's one of the reasons I love being on tour. It's uh, I don't know if I can afford touring a whole lot longer, but there's just nothing like 
you know, I hate to pull out the old Willie Nelson cliche, but there's nothing like making music with your friends. I thought tours were where artists made their money now. Yeah, well, that's supposed to be, right? That's what I thought, too. <laughs> when you're flying people around from, you know, different cities, and when we did the perfect foil, we made a very conscious decision uh, not to, uh, not for it to not be tagged as a, as a Christian band. So uh, I, I'm sure that cost us a number of potential booking opportunities. And, and since it was all in clubs, uh, a lot of uh, uh, maybe ancillary revenue, but that was an easy call to make. I, I didn't see that tour, I'm afraid, although I do, I do love Goliath. Oh, thanks. Yeah, so, uh, so that's all I got. It's been uh, a joy talking to both of you, and it's, uh, thank you for caring enough to want to do this. Thank you. This, is, uh, this has been a lot of fun. And, and listeners, thanks for listening. Christian Humanist Profiles is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Filippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. Thank you for listening.